Hello and welcome to this Fraser of Allender podcast. My name is Emma Congreve and I'm joined today by my colleague Graham Roy and also by Jeremy Peets. Now Jeremy has worked in many roles over his career, including the ex-chief economist of the Royal Bank of Scotland. He was also in charge of the David Hume Institute for a number of years. Currently, he is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, a visiting professor at the University of Strathclyde. And interestingly, until recently, he was chair of the trustees of the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland, something we'll hear about a little bit more later on. So today we are going to use recap on where we are in terms of the, the economic crisis and in terms of what's coming up in the next few months. We're also going to talk a little bit about some of the more local aspects of this crisis, particularly for the city of Edinburgh. So just to start off, Jeremy, so we're delighted that you've joined us today. And as we've already set out, you've worked in a number of roles over your career, many of them examining the global economy and the outlooks of growth. So given where we are now, what's your take on the situation and where we find ourselves? Well, Emma, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be with you and I look forward to an interesting discussion. I may have uh, fulfilled a number of roles over a very large number of years, but I've never seen anything like this before. Uh, I don't think any of us have, and that makes it so difficult, indeed impossible, to do anything like forecasting. Uh, but I find it very difficult to be optimistic about the way forward. I think the the best estimates are that the UK will not recover its uh, GDP to where it was pre-COVID until maybe 2022-2023. And that's an extended period for having uh, growth below par. And the, the governments in both in Scotland and in the UK face this very difficult dilemma. They're very keen to continue unlocking the economy so they can get output back and critically employment back uh, as soon as possible. But if they go too fast, then as we're seeing with the risk of COVID bouncing back and with winter approaching, that, that could be severe. And that could lead to some requirement for further lockdown, for further measures to intervene. And already we have the public finances in the worst state they've ever been in peacetime. And to intervene through further furlough support or investment support or support for the failing businesses could just make the public finance position not just awful, but traumatically bad. But if they go too slowly in our body, then we will have rising unemployment, and as we'll no doubt discuss later, I think that's going to be very patchy. There's going to be some areas and some groups of people who do reasonably well and a lot who really suffer substantially. So there'll be a demand for more universal credit, there'll be a demand for more support for the suffering households. Mm. That again will be difficult to finance and it will delay the period when the economy can start motoring and we can even have some business investment back and maybe even some productivity growth. So it's a very, very difficult time for policymakers. Uh, and no one knows what's going to happen. 
you have to have fleet policy making and also very knowledgeable people involved who can, who, who can judge. So the best we can hope for is a period of another two or three years where we're still not back to where we were with unemployment not back to the levels of my experience 30 years ago, but actually getting through as best we can. And that, you know, that, that would not be comfortable for anybody. But there's no really positive upside that I can envisage. Yes, and much of what we talk about ourselves um, in, in our analysis is that, you know, this is a very different situation from what we found ourselves in before. Um, and there is will continue to be a balancing act required because the virus is still in circulation. And we know that um, re-emergence on a, on a kind of national scale of, of the virus, which you know, may require severe lockdowns again, um, would be disastrous to many businesses who are teetering on the edge now. Um, so, I mean, Graham, coming to you, so in terms of where we are, in terms of um, the policies that are starting to be wound down now, I mean, do you, do you kind of feel that we're, we're going to see the, the real impacts of coronavirus in the months ahead? Um, you know, are things going to get a lot worse before they get better? Yes, I, I think the short answer is is that's likely to be the case, Emma. And I think where what one of the things we're in at the moment is a, a bit of a false situation between what the economic data is telling us and what it feels like in the real economy. So if you look at a measure such as GDP, we've seen an exceptionally large fall in GDP at the height of the lockdown. Now GDP is actually growing again. Uh, but it's growing from an exceptionally low base. But that's actually a through a period where essentially government has, has forced the economy to lock down and then provided emergency support to businesses and people to go through that lockdown. So, so even though the economy is now starting to open back up again and the economy in, in technical terms is growing, it's actually only now that the full crystallisation of the risks and the recession will start to hit home. So it'll only be when businesses are starting to get their operations back up and running again, at a fraction of the capacity that they were pre-COVID, will they start looking at their investment plans? Will they start looking at their employment plans? And it's only now they'll start. You'll start to see the the real head, the real reality of the headwinds coming into impact in the economy. And we already see that where large particularly larger companies are now putting in place quite significant redundancy plans which are going to kick in towards the end of the year so it's now as they start to think about okay the lockdown has happened we're now going to operate on a much smaller scale what's the optimal size of our workforce on on that basis and it, and it's at this point we'll start to see the pickup in terms of unemployment and the real reality and the harshness of of this recession so so you see some really you know, interesting and you know forecasts kicking around about the nature of recovery but the ones that matter to me the most are the, the most important are what most people are saying about the outlook for unemployment over the next few while and you're talking about you know the average forecast that the treasury look at of anywhere between eight to ten percent and you know that was going to be the, the unemployment rate at the end of the year into early next year and to put that in the context of Scotland that's about an extra hundred thousand people out of work so you know really significant numbers 
of people potentially going to be facing significant economic hardship, and, it, and it's only going to come. We're almost in this false dawn at the moment, uh, and this will be what will hit us in, into the autumn. And the point that Jeremy made and yourself made around the importance of the, the it's a long road back. You know, there's one of the challenges will be is getting people back into work when this kind of firestorm hits in terms of the, the, the challenges in the wider economy. Mm. And um, just picking up again on something that Jeremy says, which we'll come back to. So, so people being out of work um, for long periods of time is, of course, very harmful and damaging um, to themselves and to the sort of longer term um, productivity, perhaps, of the economy. But it also does um, require government support through the social security system to help people um, kind of you know, get by for, for that period of time. So there's there's policy costs, you know, either very kind of um, proactive policies, such as, as we've seen with the furlough scheme, and there are also costs um, for those who slip through the nets and who are um, who rely on the social security system. So so policy has got a really key role here, whether it likes it or not. Um, and just thinking about some of those the, the sort of policy that's that happened. I mean, in the early days of the lockdown or, or pre-lockdown, even it was a very swift kind of move to get some of these schemes up and running, which was quite impressive in, in many ways. And we've seen other kind of innovative things, such as the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which finished this week. So how how impressed have you been in the policy response so far, Jeremy? And, and you know, what, what, what kind of things do you think um, they'll be thinking about coming up with next? Well, I agree with you that it was impressive and rapid. And uh, I think the UK Chancellor has gained himself a reputation in a short period of time that he must never have expected to when he was sitting on the bench waiting to be called in. But uh, I think the, the other area, I, I agree with the importance of dealing with employment and unemployment, but the other point I think we've got to remember is that a large number of companies, many of them small and medium-sized enterprises, have taken on a huge amount of debt during this period. There are many companies who basically lost all their revenue or a great percentage of their revenue. Uh, during the lockdown, who furloughed staff, but a lot of them couldn't furlough all their staff and they couldn't avoid other costs, which continued. So the debt will have mounted up and they now face the expectation in six, 12 months, whenever it is, that they'll have to start repaying. Okay, it's low interest. Okay, there is a deferral on repayment, but that debt has to be repaid. Most of those businesses that have taken on extra debt won't have a bounce back in revenue that takes them above where they, they were in the past. There's no extra revenue that they got. They just have to manage with, with fortune with the level of revenue they used to before the lockdown, but with a massive extra cost in servicing that debt. So that means a lot of businesses would fail if they're not given any support. And what the policymakers are going to have to do is find ways of supporting viable businesses that, if given a modicum of support, can work their way through and become part of the regrowth of the economy and actually accept that some businesses have to fall by the wayside. Now, that's going to be very difficult. They're going to have to find whether they can provide some form of extra short-term loans to keep them going, whether they can transfer some funding into equity in some ways, 
this is going to be a real policy maker's dilemma. I was speaking to a guy from the British Business Bank just this week, and they are really concerned, I'm sure, about the percentage failure rate they can expect from the, the loans they put out. So going forward, I think keeping the right businesses alive and therefore maintaining employment through those businesses, but allowing failures, that's going to be really, really tough policy making. Yes, I mean, I, and I think that the, the very point you raise there, Jeremy, around the, the building up of the debt, that's a classic example where the effects of this crisis are not going to be short term. So the effects of that unwinding of companies being able to get back up and running, to pay down the significant debt stock that they have, to reinvest in new projects, to reinvest in productivity and to grow, that's going to be severely hampered by the legacy of this crisis. And that's why I think any hope that we had at the start that this would be a V-shaped recession and the economy would bounce back and return to normal levels of growth, I think that's largely gone out the window, primarily of what, primarily of the, the legacy effect of what that means for individual businesses, both large and small. I mean, it, it's not one of the things that's really interesting about this is that it's not just limited to smaller companies taking on debt. This is larger companies as well having to go major, go through major restructuring it in all of this and if I could maybe pick you up and Jeremy your thoughts on the, the policy debate from a Scottish context so we've obviously seen the policy responses from the UK Chancellor and the various schemes that they've put in place and we expect some further announcements in the autumn around how the UK government will approach the, the, the stimulus or the recovery phase of, of all of this but in Scotland, we've had a number of different reports into the recovery. So we had the Economic Recovery Group publishing in June. We then had a response from the Scottish Government to that. It'd be interesting to get your reflections on, on the policy response up here and whether it, whether it uh, meets the expectations. I think it's got a good, good way to go before it uh, meets my expectations. Uh, I'm afraid the report from the Benny Higgins Group was not as valuable as I'd hoped it be, would be. And um, we are seeing difficulties in determining priorities going forward. I've been looking recently at the papers for the Scottish National Investment Bank going forward, and that could have been a major player alongside the British Business Bank in helping businesses to recover and work their way through. But it looks as if it's going to focus on some really worthy missions but ones which may not be top priority at the time when we risk a really extended and deep recession with very, very high levels of unemployment and severe poverty. Rather than focusing in the next year or two on the type of missions that the National Investment Bank is talking about, or government is talking about for the National Investment Bank, I would like to see a real focus, making use of the enterprise agencies, and the skills agencies to try and help Scottish business through and help them actually to get back to investment. You talked about investment, they're not going to invest until they have hopes of surviving and working through. And productivity has to grow. We have to use this as an opportunity. Now, build back better should actually mean building back with a more effective form of investment and skills use going forward. That, that should be the priority. 
taking advantage of the fact that businesses are changing during this recovery period and trying to get them to recover smarter, better use of skilled labor, more sophisticated modern, modern investments. That's what we should be seeking to do. And that's where the National Investment Bank could help, but also the enterprise and skilled agencies, which, which we are very well blessed with in this country. Yes, and, and, and building on it, I think there's, there's a wider point, which I think the national, the, your comments around the National Investment Bank get into as well, around the expectation that policy can do everything, that we can, you know, we can radically change absolutely every aspect of our economy, every aspect of society in a relatively short period of time. And unfortunately, the harsh reality is that we can change things at the margin. Yes, we can make a difference, but we, we, we there's priorities that you have to focus upon and you can't do everything. You know, we're a small open economy with a devolved set of levers in the Scottish government context, with a wider UK context and a wider global context. So you can make changes at the margin, but you've got to reflect on the reality of everything else that's shaping that dynamic here. And yes, you can make changes, you can think about building back your economy better, but when you're facing a global pandemic with a major recession, major increases in unemployment, then your ability to stand against that and to push against that tide is extremely limited. And that, that sense of where's the laser-like focus on how we can make a difference with the devolved levers that we have in many ways is lacking. I mean, the one exception I would say to that is Mark Logan's report last week, which um, uh, I thought was was much more targeted and focused and really about you know, what do we need to do to try and improve the tech ecosystem in Scotland. So I'm not trying to big grand ambitions about well-being or you know different types of models and strategies for growth, but here is one particular area where we can potentially do better and we've got an opportunity to make a real difference here. And here are half a dozen to 10 things that could make a difference in that context. And it was really refreshing to see something like that and to, to give that external challenge and also that external reflection on what needs to be done. I agree with that. And that's one example of how we can work towards a more efficient economic base and productivity growth by, by making full use of all the technical opportunities there are. And what you said about working at the margin, uh, you know, rang a chord. I remember my first day at work in the Ministry of Overseas Development in 1969. I was told, uh, always remember you can only be effective at the margin. And I tried to remember that every day. And that's, that's what we have to try and do. But more importantly at the moment, you know, I, I'm all in favour of equity objectives. I'm all in favour of environmental objectives and working to achieve those ends. But at the moment, the top priority is getting our economy moving again in a way that limits the huge rise in unemployment and the adverse effect on young people and the poorer income groups. That has to be the top priority. Don't forget about the environment. Don't forget, of course, about equity, but focus on that key objective the next year or two. So thinking about the recovery, we've um, put our heads together this week and, and been looking at um, what some of the discussions are uh, in terms of what the recovery might look like. And as Graham's already hinted to, um, we don't expect um, this recovery to be V-shaped and that we're not gonna you know, bounce back to where we were um, six, eight months ago um, anytime soon. 
But um, we do know that this recession is not impacting on all equally. And we do know that certain sectors um, have probably done okay. Um, and that is going to be true both of the downturn and of the recovery. So if you think about sectors that can sort of put most of their staff uh, working from home and do so reasonably effectively, at least for, for six months or so, you know, them and their employees are, are not going to be potentially particularly harmed by, um, by this economic crisis. But for others, particularly people in retail, hospitality, people that have been on precarious contracts and that don't have that kind of job security, that don't have jobs that you can do from home, the situation is very different. So I've just kind of given some of the basics to that. I mean, Graeme, do you want to talk a little bit more about um, what we're calling a K-shaped recovery, potentially? Although we're going to run out of shapes and letters soon, I think. Yes. Um... Yeah, yeah, and there's an article we put on the website this week about this, and it's really just to make a pretty obvious point, that, but I think a really important point, that the nature of this recession and recovery will look radically different for different sectors in our economy, different regions, different individuals, and different businesses. And that's true with all recessions. So again, this article looks back at the financial crisis, and you see that two sectors at the epicentre of the crisis at the time, financial services and construction, took about 10 years before they recovered to their pre-financial crisis levels in Scotland. But the actual overall Scottish economy made it back up uh, to pre-recession levels after four years or so. So the, the nature of the recovery is going to look quite different uh, on a sector basis. And then if you look at different households, some households are more impacted than others and typically sadly in recessions it's people who are on the lower end of income distribution that are most impacted during downturns. I think what we hint at and it would be really good to get Jeremy's thoughts on this but one of the things we do hint at in the in the article is that potentially the, the scale of the variation in different sectors this time around and the nature of this impact means that potentially the variations could be even more significant than in a normal recession. So hospitality being an obvious one where they've essentially shut down um, for a period of time. And even when they start to come back up again, it'll be a fraction of capacity. Whereas many other sectors in the economy, as you mentioned, Emma, able to continue operating under a new model, but still continue to operate at relatively high levels. So there is a risk that, that divergence, that almost like a K-shaped between sectors able to continue on and other sectors and real significant challenge is going to be a key feature of of our economy for the next few years. So Jeremy, we get interested to get your reflections on that divergence between different parts of, of the economy and particularly some of the areas that, that you you work in. Well I think I, I was very taken with the article and I thought actually it captured uh, elements of this story that, that haven't been picked up sufficiently thus far. So I agree with the, the K shape. I agree that there are certain sectors. Let's start with the sectors because I think that's the fundamental element that leads into regions and income groups, uh, population groups as well. Certain sectors have just gone through it. And a lot of business services, a lot of financial services, and some of the data you and others have provided, have just sort of swum through this fairly, fairly easily. Uh, a lot of people have worked from home, so that has, of course, had an adverse effect on city centres in Edinburgh and elsewhere, but they've kept 
output going. Uh, I suspect they've learned some lessons for how to work more efficiently, even when people are allowed back into offices in, in full. So a number of these sectors are, have, have not suffered significantly and continue to thrive as we go into the pickup. But the other sectors, and you talked about hospitality and tourism, yes, of course they've suffered. Let me just mention the Edinburgh Zoo and the Highland Wildlife Fund. We lost all revenue for four months. And you've seen what's happened to the National Trust for Scotland. And the same will have happened to the museums, to the galleries, and the like. These marvelous Scottish institutions have lost all their revenue, but had significant costs that they've had to maintain. You know, we had to feed the pandas and the rest of the animals. We had to have keepers in to keep them going. We had to carry on with the conservation work to do the pillar. You know, we couldn't suddenly stop breeding wildcats because we hadn't got any money. You know, so we had to keep going. And so we've ended up with five million pounds worth of debt, which which has to be repaid. But and we're now back, as so many hospitality areas will be, with some income coming in, but with limits on the numbers you can take in any facility, even over there at any time, it's less than it would have been. So this is so difficult. We're fortunate compared to other tourist and hospitality sectors. I'm sure that those, depending on foreign visitors, are going to suffer for, for many, many moons. And they're having to rethink. And you've seen restaurants rethinking their model and how they can try and get some revenue going during lockdown and expecting now that there'll be a, a slower volume of trade. So that, that the, the difficulty is that the sectors that suffered most during the lockdown will be the slowest to recover. And the sectors that managed best during the lockdown will be continuing to thrive. So the K is the right shape because the, the two groups are widening. And that means that some regions will do better than others depending on that structure. Edinburgh is fortunate perhaps in having a very strong financial and business service sector as well and so very much greater than average hospitality and tourism sector. So there's a bit of a trade-off, but when you come down to it, the point you made, Graham, that the, the main adverse income is being felt on the lowest income groups and young people with insecure part-time jobs, the gig economy, those jobs are the ones that are suffering most. So one can see the sectoral difference, and in terms of the population distribution, it, it is another adverse effect on the lower income groups, which has to be dealt with. Yeah, and, and that's fascinating. And I think the, the example of Edinburgh, I think, is a really interesting case study and microcosm of the challenges facing our economy at the moment. And we, we wrote an article probably about a year, maybe 18 months ago, about um, the rise of the East, we called it. And it was about the shift in economic balance in Scotland toward the east of the country, away from the west, and looking at population growth, house, housing growth, the share of the economy taken up by Edinburgh and its surrounding areas, and truly quite extraordinary shift over the last 10, 15, 20 years. But key parts of the Edinburgh economy are now going through really unprecedented shock. Um, August should have been the month of the festival, and that's obviously a significant downturn and faced by that. Now, then, one, one, just to show our openness at the Fraser Valland Institute, even though we're based in Glasgow, both of you happen to 
to live in Edinburgh. So it would be really interesting to get your take um, on you know, what you're seeing in the Edinburgh economy and what you see as being the big challenges in that context. And maybe come to Emma first. I know you're writing an article looking at that um, just now, and then it would be interesting to get Jeremy's reflections more broadly. And again, it's interesting the example of the zoo, seeing that more broadly across other parts of the Edinburgh economy. Yeah, so, I mean, I live very close to the city centre in Edinburgh, and obviously August is the month where, unless you have a show to see, you avoid the city centre at all costs. Um, and it's, yeah, of course, it's extremely notable, um, noticeable that there just aren't any, many people around at all. And, you know, there was an article in, in The Scotsman this week with estimates that there are two million fewer people on the streets of Edinburgh in August 2020 compared to 2019 with the Edinburgh Hotel Association saying that their you know, occupation, occupancy is at 50% um, when it's normally close to 100 with, with prices slashed as well. So yes, it's, it's considerable um, the, the kind of difference um, of this August compared to previous ones. But as you said, you know, and, and Jeremy mentioned, so I mean, Edinburgh does have a big um, arts and uh, recreation, hospitality sector. Um, Absolutely. Um, but it also has other sectors that are very um, large and successful. So, I mean, the, the finance sector being a key one, but also so we have a very um, large public sector workforce here um, and in health and social care as well. So in a way, Edinburgh is a little bit like kind of an example of the K um, in, in a smaller area because you've got some sectors that are, you know, are doing fine and other ones that have absolutely fallen off a cliff. And then when you think about the people involved in these sectors, so, um, I mean, the festival does bring people from all over the country to work and, you know, the businesses, um, various business interests from, from around the place as well. But, you know, it does employ a lot of people um, locally in terms of um, sort of the lo in, in lower paid roles, um, absolutely, but quite cr crucial roles for, for um, propping up um, incomes and that tends to be from the, lo the lower um, income parts of, of the income distribution in Edinburgh so they really are um, you know at the brunt of this and we already did have um, sort of relatively high levels of things like child poverty in many parts of Edinburgh anyway so so whilst Edinburgh is, is seeing these extremes I would I would say um, even though overall maybe the impact isn't going to be as bad in Edinburgh as some as somewhere like Glasgow, for example, you know, we have fewer a uh, few proportion of jobs furloughed in Edinburgh compared to Glasgow. And um, we've had a, a lower proportion of people moving on to universal credit compared to Glasgow. But um so the, the impacts are very different for different parts of Edinburgh. Um but we shouldn't we shouldn't um, let the kind of, you know, obviously these big numbers that, that will that will be banded around and we will write a little bit more on it in the next few while in terms of Edinburgh in August. Um, you know, that's not necessarily representative of Edinburgh um, all year round. Um, but so that's just a perspective from somebody who who lives um, in Edinburgh. So, but Jeremy, obviously with your involvement with the zoo, you're probably a lot more attuned to kind of the actual reality of the businesses um, in Edinburgh. Well, I, I, I live on the periphery of Edinburgh in Midlothian, so I've seen the building boom that Graham has referred to, and I, I wonder what's going to happen to house prices uh, of these massive number of new homes that have been built. 
because there must be some people suffering and, and putting downward pressure on prices, but at the same time, anecdotally and from speaking to people who have contacts with the, the business, there seems to be quite a lot of people moving up towards Edinburgh and the periphery from England and Australia as they look for a, a, a new approach to life, working from home from a more pleasant environment. So who will, see, who, who will know what happens there? And the other sector I'm interested in before going on to the zoo and all that is universities, because both in Glasgow and Edinburgh, uh, the universities are a huge part of the economy. And what is going to happen to overseas student numbers uh, in the time going forward? Uh, I haven't seen latest figures on that. Maybe it's something Emily can include in your next article. But how severe a hit is there going to be? I know from evidence from overseas that some universities, which depend on a large number of Americans and Chinese, are seeing dramatic reductions. Uh, so will that happen to Edinburgh University and Strathclyde with its major foreign student numbers? And of course that the multiplier effect that has across the cities is again its substance. So I think that that sector is worth exploring a bit more. In terms of the impact that this has all had on, on businesses like the zoo. I think we're fortunate, as I was saying, is that local visitors account for a very high percentage. Uh, and actually, people have been desperate to get out and about and do something. And so we've been delighted to welcome them back. Obviously, limited numbers, social distancing, etc., etc. But people are very keen to come back. I would also just want to say that the generosity of members and friends uh, has been incredible. Something like a million pounds donated during the lockdown period to help keep our collections alive and flourishing. Fantastic. And the moral support we've got from that and all of the financial support was massive. So I think we'll, we'll get through, but just face the problem of paying off our debt. That's the only issue we'll have. Uh, our numbers will be back and the conservation work will continue. But National Trust has faced the same problem. But I think those parts of the hospitality sector that, and tourism that actually rely more on overseas visitors are those they're going to suffer the most because that's going to take a long time to come back and probably never to the numbers we saw. Um, book Festival, Edinburgh Festival, the Fringe and all that is just one period. Edinburgh has an all-year-round tourism industry, or had an all-year-round international tourism industry. And it'll be fascinating to see if and when that recovers. So um, the mixed economy is there, as you've described it. Thank goodness for finance and business services for the sake of the economy as a whole. But there are bits that don't look very good. Thanks, Jeremy. And, and I'm glad to hear of that generosity. And hopefully the pandas are continuing to get that bamboo and thrive. Um, yes, and maybe a, maybe a baby panda next year. Seeing as I'm no longer chairman, they, they of course will choose that year to have a baby. But there we are, I don't mind, that's fine. <laughs> well, that will certainly bring the visitors back in droves, I imagine. So on that note, um, I'd just like to say thank you to Jeremy and to Graham. Um, it's been a really interesting discussion. If you'd like to find out more about some of those articles we've mentioned, they're all on our website at fraserballinger.org. And you can find this podcast, of course, and previous versions of the podcast on our website and also on major streaming uh, platforms. 
So thank you and hope to see you again.